seated. And if you would, join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together today. Thank you that we can do so again in person. We ask that you would uh, be with those who are vulnerable or feeling ill and unable to be here today, so you would comfort them. That you would be glorified by this time of worship, that we would be edified, and that your word would be heard and understood clearly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. It's Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. It's also in the back of your bulletin, or you can find it on your Bible app. So this is the third Sunday of Advent um, in this year that's been a kind of like a perpetual Advent, a lot of waiting, right? Um, and it's the Sunday of joy. And we're continuing our series called The Intersection of Heaven and Earth. Last week, just to bring you up to speed, Gene taught on Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 through 11, as we learned about God being our source of ultimate comfort. And today, we're going to look at the promise that God makes in Isaiah 65 to restore all things, to restore his creation. It kind of reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right? It follows the Pivenzi children into a world that's unlike their own in many ways, but not so far away. Right? In fact, they discover in the wardrobe of a kind yet eccentric professor they're staying with to avoid the bombings in London and World War II. And inside of this wardrobe is a place called Narnia. Well, their introduction to Narnia is at a time when it is, as Mr. Tumnus puts it, always winter and never Christmas. The evil white witch has taken over the land, and she's plunged Narnia into a time of darkness, a season of waiting. Well, waiting for what? Or for whom? As Mr. Beaver explains to them, they are waiting for their king, a lion named Aslan, to return and to make all things right. And Mr. Beaver promises Aslan is on the move. And on the move he is. See, after a series of crises, the story reaches its climax when Aslan, presumed gone forever, when he is executed on the stone table by the white witch, is resurrected and returns to conquer the witch once and for all. And this story is reflective of our own story, isn't it? Because we know that Christ has conquered death by his own death and resurrection. And yet we are waiting for that final return when he comes and makes all sad things untrue and defeats the devil once and for all, just like Aslan defeated the white witch. This has a lot to do with our passage on this third Sunday of Advent uh, and fun fact, like if you're old school uh, with your uh, church calendar, then you might consider Advent 3 to correlate not simply to joy, but also to the third of the great last things. So the great last things would be death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Week 3 of Advent would then be Heaven Sunday. And it kind of works out for us because this passage talks about joy and about heaven. So whether you're old school or you're new school or somewhere in between... This passage is for you today. So we're going to look at four points of God's promise for eternity. As we come to realize, just like the song says, that maybe not in the same exact way, 
Heaven is a place on earth. Those four points are, God restores real things. God's restored people will have eternal joy. God's plan gives him joy. And God's plan makes things whole. So where are we in Bible history as we turn to Isaiah 65? Well, Isaiah is an interesting book because there are three different time segments throughout. The first, about third of Isaiah, is focused on the time of Isaiah, the prophet. So we could place him around 700 B.C. Then we have the second third, the second component of Isaiah, which would focus on the Babylonian exile and the return from exile. Man, Israel just can't catch a break, right? First they're in exile with the Egyptians, then they're in exile with the Babylonians. Well, the last third of Isaiah focuses on a segment that we call all those things at every appointed time which must come to pass before the end. What does that mean? It means that that last third of Isaiah, which includes our passage today, is focusing in on what we call the last things when Christ finally does return and reigns visibly forever. Now, it's important when we read this to also understand that the people who would have been reading this would have been reading this after a return from exile. So I'm going to paint that picture for us this morning. All right? So you have these return of the, of the Babylonian exiles to Jerusalem. Years have passed. Right? Decades, in fact. And much has been accomplished since they got back from their Babylonian exile. The walls have been erected again. Right? And the temple has been rebuilt. This is the second temple. Still, much of the city is still rubble. The new temple is but a pale shadow of the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians so many years earlier. The people have lived through a number of difficult years, in some respects more difficult than the years of their actual exile. And they must have wondered whether this patched together Jerusalem is the full measure of the inheritance that they were promised. Whether Yahweh has the power and the will to restore their former glory. And in fact, Isaiah 64 ends with that exact question to God. Are you ever going to give us peace? Will you ever make things right? Again, are you going to fix this problem? In chapter 65 is a prophetic answer that God gives to that question. And we begin at chapter at verse 17 today, which connects us to the earlier part of this chapter, which gives the answer to that question. Yes, yes, God will restore all things. And he promises in that restoration that former sins will be forgotten and will be hidden from his eyes. And then he gives the prophet Isaiah and all of us who get to read this passage since the details of a new project a restored creation. Let's look, look at these details, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So the words for heaven and for earth here literally mean skies and land. So when the Hebrew writers write this concept of heavens and the earth, just like in Genesis 1, they are not envisioning separate realms where God lives up here and we all live down here. Now they're talking about the physical creation that God engages with personally. Those things that he calls very good and good, right? We look up and what do we see? We see the skies. 
We look down and around and we see the land. And so what God has in mind when he talks about restoration is that he's going to restore real things. And that's our first point. God restores real things. See, we might be tempted, I know I am at times, to think about a new heaven and a new earth as a new spiritual realm, and God's over there, a new physical realm, and that's where the people go. But that doesn't add up with God's Genesis 1 creation plan. The goal of God's creation in Genesis 1, and the promise that we see when He makes all things new, is not a world in which He and His angels or counsel are separated from His people, but rather it's an intersection of what we think of as heaven and earth. We were meant to walk with God personally. This new skies and new land will be like that. A world where there is no separation, where there is no wondering where is God. And we'll notice that in more detail at the end of this passage. He is talking about restoring real things. That's why we are promised physical resurrected bodies. And he looks at these concepts of these restored animals and plants Skies and land, those things he called good and very good, will be truly restored. Because God restores real things. Let's continue to verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So God restores real things and this restoration causes joy. Our second point is that God's restored people will have eternal joy. See, Isaiah is proclaiming a promise from God that we're going to see again in Scripture. It's not unique to Isaiah. It'll come up again in Revelation in particular. And I'm thinking of chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, if you want to jot that down to check it out for yourself. See, God's restoration of real things includes making things perfect. Pain is gone. Sadness is gone. Coronavirus and divisive politics are gone. And what remains is the perfect kingdom of God with Christ Jesus on his throne and we as his co-heirs. This produces joy, a delight in the Lord and in his perfect restored reality. God's restored people will have eternal joy. But God's people aren't the only ones who are going to have joy at this restored creation. Look at verse 19. This is God talking. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. God's plan gives him joy. God's plan gives God joy. And to fully understand this and what it means for us, we're going to have to go back and look at the context of this chapter again. So think about this return from exile, right? You are an Israelite, and you return to the ruins of Jerusalem. What are you anticipating a restoration of? Well, your hallmark city. You're anticipating a restoration of a real physical city called Jerusalem, located back in your home country. It would make sense that those in Isaiah's day thought that this was the case, that it's a literal renovation of the city that meant so much to them. And we know from history that, in fact, Jerusalem, the city, is ultimately rebuilt. And, as we discussed, there's also another temple built. That is the period of time between when they return from exile and when Christ comes, and a few uh, decades after that. Which, if you're a history nerd like me, 
um, you will know this as called Second Temple Judaism. However, this is not the Jerusalem that God has in mind when he gives Isaiah this prophecy, I think, that will become clear to us. Nor is it the period after this temple is rebuilt and then destroyed later on in 70 AD. In order to understand what God is talking about here in this passage and what it means for us as Christians, we have to realize that as Christians, we understand God's perfect plan being explained in the Old Testament in light of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross in the New Testament. We don't separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's not the God of the Old and the God of the New. Rather, our question is not, like, does this matter for me because it's in the Old Testament? It's actually, how does the New Testament help me to understand what is being said in the Old Testament? Because if God doesn't change, then his message in the Old Testament has everything to do with us, just like the New Testament does. Like we discussed earlier, uh, the Apostle John talks about this new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. All right, I don't know if you've ever checked out uh, the dimensions for this new Jerusalem that he gives, but it's huge, right? Thousand, over a thousand miles long, wide, and tall. And he also refers to this new Jerusalem as a, with a special name, the Bride of Christ. Well, who else is referred to as the Bride of Christ? You know? The church. The church. We are referred to as the bride of Christ. So stay with me because we're going to build a case here. The Jews in Isaiah's day and in the days of the return from the Babylonian exile would have seen themselves as God's people because they are Jews. But we know from Christ, from what he came to do, and we know from the Apostle Paul that God's people are all who have faith in him, Jews and Gentiles alike. And since we know from the New Testament that all who have faith are God's people, and therefore the promises of God made in Scripture are not reserved for Jews only, but for every tribe and nation, and given that both Jerusalem in Revelation and the saints in glory are both referred to as the bride of Christ in Revelation, I'm going to suggest that Jerusalem that is being prophesied in Isaiah and then later on to John are the same thing. And they're not necessarily a physical city of Jerusalem, but rather he's talking about the victorious and perfected church after the last day. That's good news for us, uh, in case you didn't realize. It means that when God promises no more weeping or pain for Jerusalem, it means that we who have been resurrected in Christ will exist in the eternal joy and favor of God. No more sadness, no more pain, just perpetual experience of God's joy. This is significant for us because it means that God rejoices in our redemption. He came to rescue us, and He accomplished that on the cross, and He rejoices in that restoration. Something else is promised in this restored creation, too. So we'll continue to verses 20 to 23, where we talk about our fourth point, God's plan makes things whole. God's plan makes things whole. There's a lot to cover on this point, so I saved the best for last. What does it mean to make things whole? Here's an important Bible word for you to hold on to when you're thinking about this idea of wholeness, and that word is shalom. 
God makes things whole by restoring shalom to his creation. It's a word that means peace or wholeness. And typically when the Bible is talking about the concept of being perfect, it's actually synonymous with this idea of being whole, shalom. And so when God promises to make things whole, he promises to restore perfect peace. And what are some ways that God does that? Well, we see in verse 20, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So what's actually being promised here is that there will be no more death in the new creation. When the author uses the phrase a hundred years, it's a literary device to mean an indefinite period of time or a perfect amount of time. And we know from God's promises to his people that a perfect amount of time in the new creation is eternity in the favorable presence of God. No more death. But the sinner, and by that, one who is not regenerate by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, that means this person has not placed their faith in Christ. They are accursed or cast out forever. It means they're set apart from the kingdom of God. This is one way that God makes things whole. He takes away the pain of death forever. And for those who have faith, they're in the eternal favorable presence of God. But sin, evil, darkness, and death are destroyed forever, as we're promised in Scripture. What remains is life in the presence of God and His saints. This is one way God makes all things whole. Let's continue to verses 21 through 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. There's no more pointlessness in what we do. Do you remember the writer of Ecclesiastes? Uh, he likes to say, everything is pointless. Everything is vanity. But not so in the new and restored creation. And look at these details in verses 21 through 23 with me. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat fruit. They will enjoy the work of their hands. Their offspring and descendants will be a blessing of the Lord. When you think of what eternity looks like, what comes to mind? What do you often think of yourself doing with all that time? You know, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm often tempted to envision it like I'm just kind of floating around with my little angel wings singing hymns all day, and I've got my harp and I'm playing music with the angel choirs all day for the rest of my days, for all eternity. But that's not how God's describing restored creation here. Work, hobbies, relationships, they're not done away with. Remember that in the perfect garden of Eden, Adam and Eve worked, and they had relationships. Instead, these things are put in their proper place. They're no longer pointless, and there is no longer a loss of identity 
or misplacement of identity in these things, which are simply a good part of being a human being. And they reflect the character of God, and God never changes. See, the restored creation, God's big plan, is going to have all things as they should be. Relationships will be restored, and work and labor will not be dysfunctional, meaningless, or a source of idolatry. All these things will be done for the right reason, for the glory of God for all eternity. And we'll delight in these things because it is yet another way that God's plan makes things whole. And this promise grows even more positive as we continue to verses 24 and 25. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. God's plan makes things whole because by the finished work of Christ on the cross, being fully revealed at the last day, when God's kingdom is fully and visibly revealed, our relationship with God will be perfect and more personal than we've ever experienced. And this points to two realities about our relationship with God. First, how we experience it now. And second, how it should and will be. Well, how is our relationship with God now? If there's any issue with that relationship, remember it comes from us and not from God because God is perfect, but we are weak. Consider the answer to this question. Do you ever feel like God has not answered a prayer? Does it ever feel that way? We know He does. Has it ever felt like there was silence, no direction? Or do you ever wonder if you are praying the right thing even? Like, you're like, am I doing this right? Am I like saying the wrong words? You know, what's going on? Well, if the answer to those things is yes, you're not alone. In fact, you're in good company. And the Apostle Paul relates to us on this in Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In restored creation, there will no longer be weakness in this relationship. Rather, it will be how God has always meant for it to be. He will dwell with us in a visible, real way as we behold His glory in the person of Jesus Christ for all eternity. It will be like the Garden of Eden, but with no occasion for a fall. God will engage with us at the personal level, yet unexperienced by us, as He walks with us in a perfect and harmonious relationship. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Finally, let's turn to verse 25, where the final aspect of our fourth point, that God makes things whole, is revealed. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is another way that God makes things whole. And it's by establishing a core concept or aspect of this idea of shalom that we're talking about. That is perfect, permanent peace on earth. 
And it's easy just to kind of glaze over these creatures that are being described here, right? Because we've probably read this passage numerous times. So we've got the, the wolf, and we've got the lamb, and we've got this lion, and that he's eating grass, right? And then we've got the snake, and the snake's eating dust, and we just kind of move on. But let's not miss the significance of this, especially the serpent. Do you remember the story of the fall of creation in Genesis we're near the end of the account. God promises that the serpent, who is the deceiver, or Satan, will no longer be a threat. You can find that in Genesis three, fourteen, And that's an important aspect of the peace that's being promised here. Yes, peace will be established forever because everybody will be in perfect, reconciled relationships with each other and with God. And lions won't be eaten like goats and antelopes and stuff. They'll be grass. But more importantly, Satan will be defeated. He will no longer be a threat. Rather, he'll be cast into destruction on the last day. So when God is saying the serpent will eat dust, he's really just telling Satan to pound sand. You know, By the reconciliation of relationships and the destruction of all evil, God's plan makes things whole. This is what we're waiting for during Advent. And yes, Advent's a season that helps us to prepare for Christmas. And we, we learn how to wait, which is opposite to our culture, right? That wants us to hurry and have instant gratification for everything. And yes, some of us celebrate Advent differently while waiting for Christmas. Full disclosure, and I know this is online, so all my other Anglican clergy friends will be texting me, but my tree is up and it is decorated. All right, I know that it's only the third week of Advent. I don't care. It's up. It's ready to go. But if we limit the season of Advent to a few weeks on the calendar leading up to December 25th, we miss the point entirely. Instead of a season, we need to understand Advent and what we learn in Advent as our way of life, learning to wait for the return of the King. And while we remember these other moments on the church calendar, and they're all very important, because they remind us of our story and the story that we experience in Christ. We are still waiting for Christ to come again. So today, you know, we've talked about how joy and heaven both fit well into our conversation this morning, and that it's so profound how God does not want to create a realm for himself and a realm for the rest of us, but rather will collide the two in the intersection of heaven and earth in this restored creation We've talked about how with that restoration comes a restored and renewed sense of joy, not just for us, but for the Lord as well. And so as we watch and we wait, remembering that we know not the day or the hour when the master of the house shall appear, let's joyfully await to hear those words that he will say, to enter into the joy of your master. This is the promise that we claim during Advent. Christ has died Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And even as we navigate the confusion of this present age, may we never forget that Aslan is on the move. Lord, come soon. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, for your promise to return. Thank you for leaving your word here for us to understand Lord, we ask as we continue this time of worship together, 
that you would be glorified, we would be edified and also nourished as we prepare to receive Holy Communion together. That as we go from this place, we would be good at waiting and anticipating your second coming. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.